Hey, Danny, how you doing? Hey, Rick, good to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So was that was that login difficult or was that smooth? Hey, uh, you know, it takes a, for an MIT guy, it took a little bit of effort, but I'm getting <laughs> I was going to say, hopefully, uh, hopefully you know how to use IT and computers. It seems like your background is strong. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, as I told you, I've agreed to stay off Instagram to give my kids space, but uh, well, I'm glad you did a special uh, dispensation to join you. Well, excellent. And again, thanks for thanks for being on. I'm just going to do a brief introduction uh, while everyone's logging on. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, Danny Weitzner, uh, he is a professor of computer science at MIT, and he's a world-recognized leader in cybersecurity and cyber attacks. Uh, he's the former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer uh, for the White House, where he led um, initiatives on privacy, cybersecurity, copyright, and digital trade policies. Uh, he is responsible for the Obama um, administration's consumer privacy bill of rights and internet policymaking principles. Uh, he's been a leader in internet uh, public policy from its inception, uh, making fundamental contributions to the successful fight for strong online free expression protection in the US Supreme Court. Uh, at MIT, he's the founding director of the MIT Internet Policy Research Initiative, uh, principal scientist uh, at their AI lab, and he is a he also runs the AI lab and he teaches internet public policy. Uh, his groundbreaking research uh, pioneered the development of accountable systems to enable computational treatment of legal rules. Uh, as background, he has a law degree from Buffalo Law School uh, and a BA in philosophy from Swarthmore College. Uh, he's published extensively in Science Magazine, the Yale Law Review and the Washington Post. Founder for the Center uh, for Democracy and Technology, uh, led the World Wide Web's consortium public policy activities and was the deputy policy director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I could keep on going on and on about uh, Professor uh, Weitzner's background, but clearly he is one of the world leaders in cyber attacks, which has become only more common and only more prevalent. And uh, it's an excellent topic to go over because I feel like the lay people don't really know what's going on out there, and that includes me. So. Again, welcome, Danny. Pleasure to have you on talking about this very important topic. Rick, it's great to be here. I just have to, you inflated my roles just a little bit uh, with that very generous <laughs> introduction. My colleague, uh, Professor Daniela Roos, actually runs the AI lab, which has about 120 uh, researchers in artificial intelligence. I'm only one of them. Uh, so, okay. but uh, I, right. I don't want don't to upstage my extraordinary colleague, uh, Daniela Roos. Absolutely. Well, I apologize for that. Exactly. No, no. <laughs> so we'll just get started just by kind of going over stuff for the lay people. Like I said, uh, people don't really understand that these cyber attacks can happen at multiple different layers. They can happen to, to, to people, um, individuals. They can happen to groups, companies, corporate um, people, state, and then national, international. So we'll focus a little bit right now on just national cyber attacks. By definition, what is a national cyber attack? Well, it's a great question. Uh, and as with all things in the military and computing, there's not exactly a simple answer, uh, or that is it's not always easy to tell when an attack is really from a nation state. What, what we now are getting good at is understanding when attacks come from entities that are associated with a nation state. So there are some that are, that are simple, that are clear, 
um, uh, a lot of the attacks uh, from Russia on the 2016 election actually came from a part of the Russian government, the Internet Research uh, uh, Agency. So we we know that that was uh, actually an act that the Russian government decided to take, and it did it through mostly uh, people who actually work for the Russian government. So that's uh, uh, and there are other kinds of attacks like that that are actually directed by one nation state or another. There's a murkier area where there are independent entities, uh, gangs, you might call them. They look a lot like organized crime uh, figures who um, are associated with government. Uh, and a lot of attacks that we see uh, recently come from those kinds of activities. Uh, and we could talk about some of those as well. Um, What's what's notable, though, in the military realm, in the kind of nation state realm, is that um, back uh, a couple of years ago, the Pentagon actually declared cyberspace as what they call a domain of military activity. So they actually have recognized that cyberspace, the Internet, our phones, all the data out there is a place where warfare can happen. Uh, where they're getting ready to both attack and defend. Um, uh, and what's really hard about this and what I think is, is, is challenging is that we all live in that domain. So uh, we're, we're right here. Uh, uh, um, it's not like some distant battlefield uh, where, of course, often there are usually people who live in battlefields, but um, uh, the more powerful countries have tended to figure out with respect to traditional warfare, how to make sure that the battles happen elsewhere. Yeah, and so Our challenge is that the battles in the so-called cyber domain are happening where we live and where we work and where our valuable information and assets are. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit it really just right on the head there in the sense that we all live in this domain and yet we don't, or, or, or you know, like there's many of us who don't realize that we are in this battlefield. And so I think giving us some examples of what are the biggest threats, electricity, water, food supply? I mean, what are the biggest cybersecurity threats to our nation right now? So look, so when it comes down to it, any computer system that is connected to the internet that also runs something that's important, whether it's, as you said, our utilities, our electric power supply, or our gas pipelines, uh, or our banks, uh, uh, or our education systems now, our hospital systems, we should make sure to talk about. Any system that's connected to the Internet is more vulnerable than if it were not connected to the Internet. So every time we make a decision that says, well, let's make sure that the, you know, the computer that runs your local water distribution plant um, is also on the Internet, why would we have it on the Internet? Well, because it's easier to keep the software updated because maybe you use that computer for other things. But when we do that, we take risks. Um, uh, and so what we've seen around the world uh, uh, are attacks on those kinds of infrastructures. Um, we've seen, and, and one of the first attacks that uh, was, was really interesting and that it has interesting results is there was a little bit of a skirmish, uh, a physical skirmish between Estonia and Russia, the Russian Federation, in 2007. As part of that, the Russians who are very good at this kind of thing, who have outstanding cybersecurity expertise, 
um, actually attacked a number of the Estonian government websites, um, disrupted a number of Estonian financial services and other kinds of private services. They even defaced some of the Wikipedia pages of, of Estonian war heroes. Um, and what's really interesting is that, you know, of course, Estonia is a member of NATO. So it, 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 it meant that NATO had to figure out what do we do? Uh, was this, and it was less clear, by the way, then, whether that was really an act of war or not, or whether it was really an aggressive action from state to state. Um, but what NATO did and Estonia, two different things. Number one, Estonia kind of doubled down. They said, we're not going to let Russia scare us off the Internet. And they actually doubled down on a lot of their efforts to make government services more accessible online, to even uh, do some voting online, to make uh, uh, things like tax filing and everything online. All that, they, Estonians were leaders in that. And they did that despite the fact that they were under threat from Russia. Uh, and maybe even because they wanted to prove they weren't going to be intimidated. And at the same time, NATO said, we're not going to get pushed around by Russia. So they actually, NATO established its one of its first large-scale cyber response bases in uh, in Estonia, in Tallinn. And, and um, uh, so that was an early example of an attack that certainly didn't have anywhere near the kind of damage that... Um, that war that you know that, that that a physical war would have would have had it wasn't like tanks were rolling into the capital uh city um but uh it was definitely a show of force uh and we've seen that in a lot of other cases where countries kind of push each other a little bit and and may not attack to cause damage but definitely attack to show that they're capable uh, yeah. We saw it again in the 2016 election in the U.S. Russia, um, as, as far as anyone can tell, Russia didn't actually disrupt any or change any of the votes in 2016. But we know that Russia actually uh, uh, intruded on and gained access to a number of the voter registration systems in states all around the country. And they did that just to show us that they could. And so, you know, I'm not trying to scare people who are listening, but how devastating can a cyber attack be? Like, what what are we looking at kind of worst case scenarios? What could a country that has a successful cyber attack do here? Well, uh, you know, we know that that cyber attacks can do real physical damage to real physical facilities. Uh, there were there was a, you know, very well known uh, attack called Stuxnet on some Iranian uh, nuclear weapons production facilities, that cyber attack, which was conducted at a distance, actually just damaged, uh, did millions of dollars of damage to very sensitive Iranian equipment uh, that they used to refine um, radioactive materials. And so, so we know that real physical destruction is possible. We know, for example, Iran showed the U.S. that, that it could actually gain access to uh, uh, a computing system that controls a dam in New York State. So they probably could have actually opened up the dam, caused the flood, killed, killed people. Uh, what's the worst case? We don't know. Um, uh, and that's because, uh, you know, while the Internet creates a lot of, a lot of vulnerabilities, we also know that 
the systems that we depend on, uh, whether they're electric systems or financial systems or whatever else, uh, there is some amount of redundancy in those systems. So if you attack one system, others can step in uh, uh, and and take over. Um, we have not yet seen uh, a full-on cyber attack on any advanced economy yet. So uh, we know that a lot of damage is possible. How extensive it would be, it's actually hard to tell because we don't. And that's not a good thing that we yeah. don't know, but we just don't know. It's a little bit like saying, what would happen if we said a year and a half ago, what would happen if uh, a new SARS virus hit the U.S., yeah. right? How much would we have been able to predict what would be the damaging extent of it and, and where would we find protection? Uh, we don't know yet, but we know the damage could be substantial. So what are we doing as a country knowing that we are vulnerable, just like every country is vulnerable, but we obviously have a target on our back. How can we prevent cyber attacks or at least mitigate them? Well, so when you, when you, want, when you look at what we're doing, the answer is we're doing different things in different parts of our economy to greater and lesser uh, uh, effectiveness. Um, uh, there are sectors of our economy um, uh, that used to be highly vulnerable. We know that our voting systems were highly vulnerable. Um, and after 2016, the, both the Department of Homeland Security and the state, a number of the state election authorities realized this vulnerability and made a lot of investment um, uh, to to, to try to up their cybersecurity game. And um, what we know is that 20, 2020 elections were conducted in a much more secure environment than 2016. Now, a lot of that has to do with just making sure that the people in institutions are ready for attacks. We'd like to think, and I would like to tell you coming from MIT, that there's some magic piece of technology that we can just invent and solve all these problems. And that's really not the case because most of the vulnerabilities that we see and most of the attacks that have had large scale effect are actually attacks on pretty simple features of our systems that if we only took care of the systems well enough, uh, probably wouldn't happen or, or would have been much less significant or there are attacks that could have been mitigated if we had better backups in place or better system redundancy in place. So what what we're doing on the positive side is we're building more redundancy into our systems. We're building more resilience into our systems. We're making sure that, for example, if a hospital um, uh, is subject to a ransomware attack, if someone managed to get into a hospital's electronic medical record system and encrypt all the data, which has happened, mm -hmm. uh, that the hospital can say, uh, well, we Luckily, we have a whole working copy of this system somewhere else, and we're going to turn that one on and continue to provide care, continue to conduct surgeries, whatever it is uh, that, that needs to go on. Um, uh, but some sectors are doing much better at that than others. Our financial services sector tends to be ahead of the curve uh, on this because and, and it, it, you would think it's because they have a lot of money, which is partly true, but they're also used to thinking about risks that they are under. Banks have always been under risk, under threat. They've always faced risks. 
and they've generally been pretty good at thinking about how to mitigate those risks. Um, uh, other sectors like the utility sector, the education sector, I hate to say it, the healthcare sector are really not uh, uh, as far along yet. Um, but in many cases, and I would say a lot of our governments, uh, we know state and municipal governments particularly are especially vulnerable and don't tend to have the resources to invest in the people and the equipment they need to really be, be ready for cyber attacks. Um, so it's a it's kind of a mixed bag across our society, um, but I think that the the most important thing for people to realize is even though we are a pretty well connected society now, we're all kind of part of this internet ecosystem. Our vulnerabilities are quite dispersed. Um, so an attack on a bank doesn't necessarily mean an attack on your uh, electric power system or your hospital. Each sector has to really look hard and each institution, and I would say even each individual has to really look hard, not so much at whether they're hardened against attacks or whether they can keep all attacks away, but do they have a plan when an attack happens? Do you have backup? Do you have redundancy? Uh, is your whole life sitting on your cell phone, on your smartphone, uh, without a backup at all. Uh, that's a bad place to be. Yeah. Uh, can you depend on your smartphone? Sure, you can depend on it for a lot, but make sure you have a backup uh, of, of, of the information. So, so that's, that, that's where we are. I would say we're in process. Uh, there's greater awareness that these are real risks, um, uh, but we're, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. I, like, how much crossover is there between federal cybersecurity and individual or corporate uh, cybersecurity? Is there a lot of, uh, you know, it, I mean, are you guys collaborating at that level or is it just every man for himself? No, no, I, I would say that, look, a, a key, the federal government really has a couple of key roles, um, one of which is obviously to defend against the big nation state attacks. So we want to make sure that, you know, other countries are on notice that if they attack us, in some catastrophic way, that we will be able to strike back. That's that's a that's a military function, and that's going on today. Um, uh, on the kind of civilian side, um, the Department of Homeland Security does a lot to collect information about what where the threats are, and to make sure that the people who need that information, the people who run all of our systems in the private sector, have access to that information. Um, uh, the the federal government is a is a an important source of that threat information. Some of that comes from our intelligence agencies. Some of it comes from other places. But of course, we have a lot of cybersecurity firms that are also on the lookout for for threats. So we have this whole kind of complicated system that's really mixed between government and private sector of collecting and sharing information about threats. You 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 probably people probably saw. Um, there was a recent attack on the Microsoft Exchange server. Um, many, many people who have any kind of corporate email depend on the Microsoft Exchange server, and there was a major vulnerability found in what's called a zero-day vulnerability. It means it's a new vulnerability that no one knew about. And it was so severe that actually the the U.S. the White House National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, actually tweeted himself 
that anyone who was running a Microsoft Exchange server need to make sure to put in the software patch. That's how serious it was. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll say one thing that's that's kind of unusual about the federal government role. Um, when we think about crime, the first thing we do, we think about with a regular crime is if a crime happens, you call the police, call your local police. Uh, maybe you call the FBI, but probably you call your local police. The reality is when cyber attacks happen, that is not the first thing that companies do. The first thing they do is they call the, they call their internal cybersecurity people. They call their external consultants. They say, help me fix this. Sometime later, they might call the FBI. Um, but there are two problems with that. Number one, the FBI doesn't always know what to do. Number two, the companies worry that they might actually get in trouble with the FBI because maybe they're not doing enough to maintain their system securely, or maybe the attack was from some insider. And number three, they don't want their whole system, their whole infrastructure seized by the FBI as a crime scene. Now, that doesn't happen in quite such extreme ways anymore, but we haven't really figured out, I think, the right kind of law enforcement role. Uh, when we have big attacks against companies, often there are one, if one company is attacked, often other companies are harmed. Uh, Target uh, was attacked. Um, about five, six years ago, they lost a huge number of credit card numbers in that attack. Uh, and that meant that the credit card companies were on the hook to cover those losses. So the credit card companies sued Target. Uh, the credit card companies recovered their money, but all the hundreds of thousands of people who had to go through the inconvenience of figuring out how to, how to you know, restore their credit, how to figure out if they had lost any money, they, for the most part, got no money whatsoever. So we're, we haven't yet arrived at a point where uh, we, we have a clear view of who's responsible for pre preventing against losses. It's not always the federal government. It usually isn't. It's usually the private sector. And, and when push comes to shove, who has to pay when there's a loss? Because remember, the criminals, the attackers, are almost always outside the reach of federal law. Yeah. They're in another country. They may they may well be in a country where there's very little law enforcement at all. Um, so uh, that's all still got to be figured out. Yeah. And I guess the next question is you mentioned cyber defense and cyber offense, how just like regular warfare, the U.S., you know, tends to dominate by fear of retaliation, having a strong military. What type of cyber offense does the U.S. have and is it used frequently? Um, so, uh, interestingly, our adversaries know a lot more about the answer to that question than our citizens do, and that includes me. Uh, so those are those are pretty clear. Uh, the, um, the U.S. government will talk a fair amount about our defensive capabilities to make sure people are and our adversaries are appropriately scared. Uh, they don't tend to talk a whole lot about our offensive capabilities. Uh, Makes they sense. tend to rather show them. Uh, uh, we certainly know that after the attacks on the 2016 election, uh, there were a number of actions taken against Russia. We know that when China attacks us, we may attack them. But sometimes, remember, our retaliation is not always in, quote, the cyber domain. We may mm -hmm. say, OK, well, we're going to go arrest people. We're going to seize people's. We're going to seize the assets of Russian government officials or Russian oligarchs who are connected with the government. So we have a lot of different ways to respond uh, when there are attacks.
Got you. And, and of course, this is all based on technology, which is accelerating at an incredible pace. How, how do you keep up with the advancements? I mean, countries are basically racing one another to advance their technology so they can have the advantage when it comes to cyber attacks. Is, is that like what kind of research are we doing so that we can stay on the front line of, of technology and cyber defense? Well, um, I'll tell you one thing we're doing. Um, and you know, there's a lot of good work going on, and this is probably going to have to be our last uh, our last question. Um, uh, there's a lot of work, good work going on in trying to figure out how to make systems that are more secure that can defend themselves against attacks. One thing uh, we're really interested in is trying to evaluate what are the most effective cyber defenses that companies can deploy. Interesting, one of the, the hard things about cybersecurity and about knowing what to attack uh, is that, or, or knowing how to defend yourself is that companies tend to be reticent about sharing information about the results of attacks. So um, uh, they don't necessarily want to say how much money they lost. They don't necessarily want to say that when their systems were shut down. What that means is that when, when, when we try to study overall what is the best way to defend against certain kinds of attacks? We have very little information. Think of it from a, a kind of a public health perspective. Imagine if people constantly were getting sick, but uh, no one had any information about who was getting sick with what. Imagine we had no public health authorities to collect that information about who's getting what kind of infections and and where um, uh, um uh, and 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 where um, uh, um, uh, you know where d new diseases are popping up. That's the state that we are in to a large extent on cybersecurity. We've actually built a, a particular kind of secure system that collects data anonymously from lots of companies and analyzes what kinds of attacks were they subject to, and most importantly, how much money did they lose. Uh, and that that is allowing us to start to figure out where are you best, where should you be putting your cybersecurity defense dollar? Where is that dollar going to be spent most effectively? So that's the kind of work we're doing to try to understand how to respond in a smart way going forward. Well, listen, Danny, I know you're super busy. Thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy day to talk to us about this topic, which I feel is totally underappreciated because it's such an important uh, topic and obviously it's only becoming more important. So thanks to you and your group at MIT, all the amazing work that you're doing, keeping this country safe. Uh, and again, thanks for your time. I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, Rick. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Be well. All right, take care, Danny. Bye-bye.